0: Last week, we talked about the power of peace, and today, we're going to talk about the power of restoration. A few weeks ago, we mourned the passing of one of the greatest evangelists of our day, possibly the greatest. He was an evangelist that traveled the world many, many times and was invited to speak at places which is not a normal for a Christian minister to be welcomed. Uh, Islamic State's... Hindu states, even um, uh, parlors of parliament. That's not the right term, is it? Parlors of parliament. I don't even know where that came from. But the parliament of countries, uh, which are not necessarily friendly to Christianity. But Dr. Ravi Zacharias was that man, and we just uh, he just passed away recently. And one thing that he was, I guess, famous for is that he would go into universities and did so all over the, the, the country and all over the world. That's the first time I actually saw him in person was back in the early 90s. It was at Georgia Tech, and um, he had a time where he spoke, and then he had question and answers. And that was what he became pretty famous for, really, is question and answer time. You got to hand it to a guy who will stand up in front of a group of thousands of people and put a microphone over there and say, anyone can ask any question. I mean, that takes guts, doesn't it? But he did that for years and years and years. Well, recently, in the the last year, someone kind of flipped a script on him. And they said, "Uh, this is my question, said uh, Dr. Zacharias, do you have any questions that are not answered? (laughs) It kind of threw him back for a moment. And he had to think about it. But his answer was both revealing and sad. He said, I I have a question. He says, I don't understand why people who are Christians act so much unlike Christ. And he was referencing those who are impatient and unkind to people of other faiths and even people of no faith. He did not understand why civility did not win the day in many people's lives, that they were agitated and, and they were agitating and he said, I, I don't understand that, how we can name the name of Christ and yet so act so unlike Christ. And it really points to the struggle that we all deal with, right, between the flesh and the spirit, between having an our way and submitting ourselves to God. That is a situation that every Christian faces, but in a much greater sense, the whole world faces that. Everyone deals with whether I'm going to live autonomously and do what I want, when I want, how I want, with who I want, or am I going to submit myself to God? Am I going to submit myself to the way that God wants me to live? It is a battle between freedom and submission. It is a scenario which really fills all of our lives. Which way am I going to live, either autonomously in freedom or am I going to submit myself to God? I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Daniel. Now, we haven't looked at the book of Daniel in quite some time. And I'm going to warn you right now, we are going to read a pretty lengthy portion of scripture. That's not normal for us. I tried many times to look at how we could divide this and shorten it up. And I just didn't think it would do justice. And so what we're going to do is look at the book of Daniel at a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to read what happened to him. And we're going to talk about the power of restoration. Now, if you look at Daniel chapter 3, you'll notice that's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image, an idol, and made a law that said everyone must bow down to this idol when the music plays. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in exile. The Babylonians had captured many Jewish people, had killed many Jewish people, but they brought the best of the young to them and were trying to make them... Babylonians. They were training them in their culture, and they were training in their wisdom and their logic. And this was the case for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, good Jewish young men who were now captive, and they were having to learn the ways of the Babylonians. And they were doing that until the line was crossed. You see, God never promised us that we would always have a Christian government. You guys Okay. He never promised that we would always have it really nice and that the governing authorities over us would always make the right decisions. But he said, submit to the governing authorities for, for there is no authority given except what is appointed by God. But there can be a point in time where the governing authorities cross the line and try to make lawful something that is not pleasing to God. That in order for you to do what they want you to do, you're, they're crossing the line. That was the case with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have been instructed with the Ten Commandments, you will not have any images, no golden idols, no idols of any kind. And so they refused to bow down. You remember what happened, right? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. But when King Nebuchadnezzar actually looked into the furnace, which is remarkable in and of itself, he said, didn't we just throw three guys in there? They said, yes, yes, King, we threw three guys in there. He said, I see four. And one of them looks like a god, He said, bring those guys out of here. And he made a decree. He said, across all of this nation, if anyone speaks a word against their God, they'll be executed immediately. But he was not converted. There's a difference in acknowledging God and being converted to God. It's one thing to say there is a God. It's another thing to say, I submit myself to him. All right, now you ready to read? Good, because we're going to do it. All right, Matthew, uh, Daniel, sorry, Daniel, chapter four, and we're starting at verse number ten. Here we go. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and he begins to tell his vision. He said, "I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous." The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruitful abundance, and it was was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip all its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I had, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is on you. So now Daniel begins to interpret the dream. Let's read what he says. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has ensued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you. Your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Now, this is not part of the interpretation. This is Daniel's advice to the king. And he says, "'Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue.'" That was the advice that Daniel gave him. But let's look and find out what happened. Verse number 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 12 months later, please remember those three words. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence "'by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. "'Even as the words were on his lips, "'a voice came from heaven. "'This is what is decreed to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. "'Your royal authority has been taken from you. "'You will be driven away from people "'and will live like wild animals.'" You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 33 says, immediately. Verse 29 said, 12 months later. Verse 30 said, immediately. We're going to take a pause right here. When God tries to get a person's attention who's living in their own freedom, in their own sovereignty, making up their rules, their decisions, their path, their agenda, and God wants to draw them in and get their attention, he always gives them a word. He sends someone to them. He makes it very clear. The path you're going in is not good. Repent. And then God always gives them time. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months to repent. But because he didn't, verse 33 becomes a reality immediately. There are times in people's lives where they say, "All of the sudden, my life fell apart." All of a sudden, nothing went right. All of the sudden, I couldn't, I can't. All of a sudden, all this happened. And I would submit to you the reality that, yes, it does happen quickly, but it happens quickly because you were slow. It happens quickly because that person did not heed the Word of God. If you're here today and you are not heeding the Word of God and what He's telling you to do, even though it is difficult and even though you'll have to submit your your freedom to Him and come under submission to Him, I would encourage you, do it today and don't wait. You may be now in a time of grace in which God is saying, I gave you a word, what are you going to do with it? I submit to you, submit to it. Otherwise, immediately, the fulfillment is going to take place. All right, let's keep reading. A few more verses and we'll be done. Verse 33, immediately. What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever." His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, "'What have you done?' At the same time that My sanity was restored, My honor and splendor restored to Me for the glory of My kingdom.'" My advisors and nobles, they sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble." Well, that's a lot to unpack, isn't it? How long do y'all have? No, I'm just kidding. Let's talk about this for a moment. Let's talk about three truths really quickly. Number one, God created all things perfect. That's truth number one. He creates all things perfect. When God created the, the, what we call the heavenly host or the angels and the creatures that are in heaven, He created them perfect. But a part of perfection is free choice. God gave us a free will to choose whether to remain obedient or to become disobedient. God creates all things perfect, and imperfection is a choice. We live in connection to the consequences of our choice, though. What we really want is to choose whatever we want to choose, to live in this autonomous freedom that we do whatever we want to do, but we only want positive consequences. Now, we have to own that, right? oh, y'all are better Christians than I am because I want that. I I just want positive consequences. Yeah, that's kind of human nature. But God says, no, you're given the freedom of decision, but you're tied to the consequences of those decisions. And we work this out in many different ways in the short term, but the big question that culminates all of that is asked many times. It says, well, if God is love and he is so loving and kind and compassionate, then how can he send someone to hell? If God is love, how can he send someone to hell? And that can be a perplexing question for many of us to answer because, well, God is love and there is a hell, and and how do we respond to that? Perhaps a question in response to that would be this Would it be loving for a God to take someone who does not want him, does not like him, does not love him, does not talk to him, does not listen to him, does not obey him, and when they die, to then make them spend eternity with him? Would that be love? Would you say that was a loving God to say, this guy hates me, but I love him so much, I'm going to make him spend eternity with me, even though he hates me? you got to wrestle with that. So I would say put the question back on the questioner and say, you answer that question, then I'll answer your question. See, we want the freedom, but we don't want bad consequences. But there's a second truth, and that is that an angel was the first to sin. Man was actually the second to sin. An angel was first to sin. It was what we call Lucifer, and he was created perfect. But he said, you know what? This isn't quite good enough. I don't want to follow and submit any longer. I actually want to go above God and be above him. And so somehow he thought that if I disobey God, I can get above God. That never works. And so he was the first to sin. And, of course, then Adam and Eve Followed suit. And what is the sin that Adam and Eve committed other than just simply saying we don't want to be submitted to God. We want to make our own rules. He told us we can eat from the trees of all of the garden except one right in the middle. Don't eat from that tree. But why should he be the one to make the rules? We want to have the freedom to make our own rules and do what we want. That never ends well. There's a difference between autonomy and freedom to do whatever you want and submitting yourself to God. The third truth is this, God provides a way of restoration, aren't you glad? God provides a way to say, "Okay, you 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 did the freedom thing and you made your own choices and you went your own way, but I love you so much, I'm going to make a pathway for you to come back. I'm going to make a path for you to be restored back to me." And I'm so thankful that God made a path And that is what many people wrestle with, is did God make one path or did he make two? If he made two, then did he make three? And if he made three, then did he make 300? And if he made 300, did he make 3,000 paths? And if he made three, you get the picture. Because we always want one more, right? And aren't you thankful that God did not say, hey, y'all just choose a path? I mean, you did so good making choices at the beginning that I'm sure you'll choose the right. But he made one path, and that path is Christ. Love is patient and love is kind. And so he is patient to wait on us. He's patient to continue to woo us back to himself. He's patient to continue to speak to us. But his patience can come to an end. He can say, all right, I've I've given you all the chances. If you continue to reject Christ, there is that point in time where you have transitioned beyond the laws that he has established. Because you see, truth is limited to what is correct. Truth has not the opportunity to choose whatever. Two plus two equals. Truth can only choose one answer and it must be correct. Wrong has a limitless answer. Wrong is limitless, but truth is narrow. That's why God said, I have created a truth, a way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. My question to you today is, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Because he is the way that God has made for us to be restored back to him. And in coming to that truth and that realization that I have gone my own way, I need a Savior, and Christ is that Savior, that's when we are born again. That's when our life transitions from the inside out and everything about us begins to change. That's that moment when we realize that now we're, we are no longer working in a freedom that is in, a, in rebellion to God. Now we are submitted to God, and now we have real freedom. Paul made it so clear. He said those who are apart from Christ are slaves to sin. You see, when we don't know Christ, we are a slave. We have no freedom at all because we are driven by sin. The Bible tells us that we have a sinful nature apart from Christ. We have a nature that just sins. We don't have a sinful nature because we sin. We sin because we have a sinful nature. We were born with that nature. It came from Adam and Eve. That's why you don't have to teach a two-year-old to steal. Or be selfish. They're playing and they see a toy that they like. It's in the grasp of another child. That makes no difference at all. They go over there and they grab it and they go, mine. Mine. One of the three words that they know, mine. If they could really articulate a little better, you'd probably hear them say, nine tenths of the law, possession, it's Mine. We don't have to teach rebellion, it comes natural. But that's the very thing that God heals us from. The Old Testament prophecies, I will take out of you that nature of sin, he he references a stony heart, a heart that's hard toward God, that's mad at God, that that will not submit. He said, I'm going to take that out of you and I'm going to put within you a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft and pliable, a heart that submits. So once that happens, once once we have received Christ and and He's changed our very nature on the inside, how then do we live? How is it that we go through life as believers in Christ, being formed more into the image of Him? Number one is we get to enjoy the love of a Savior, Jesus. We get to enjoy His love. We live a life of enjoyment because He has restored us to Himself. Salvation is the provision for our sins. The Bible tells us in Romans that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got cleaned up or even to ask him, Lord, could you please save me? Oh, yeah. Okay. Hang on just a minute. I got to send Jesus to the cross. He said, no, while y'all were messed up, I sent Jesus to the cross. I wasn't waiting on you. I made provision for you. The life of grace is the life that we live even after coming to Christ, when we slip, we stumble, we fall, God says, Hey, just acknowledge it. I'll forgive. Let's go. Come on. Keep moving. And He forms us into His image. Have you ever been in a situation where, as a child, you went to a, maybe it was an arena or a theater or a stadium, and you would just look and you were like, wow, this is so big. This place is enormous. 20 years later, now as an adult, you go back to the same place for the very first time, and in your mind, you're still thinking, wow, this place is enormous. And when you walk in, you go, I remember it being so much bigger. It just doesn't seem as big as it used to be. That's the way it is with physical stuff. That's the way it is with things that we see and experience. As a child, whoa. As an adult, eh, it's nice. That's in the physical. But when we look at the spiritual, it flip-flops to the other side. As a child, it's like, oh, that's nice. As an adult, we're blown away by the things that God does. In C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia... Lucy, the, the youngest of the four children and, and very receptive to spiritual things, I guess, uh, meets Aslan for the first time, and, and Aslan is the Christ-like uh, image in the story. He's a lion, and she meets him, and they, they have that adventure, if you've seen the movies or you've read the book. Well, then years later, she meets him again, and she says, Aslan, you, you, are, you are so much bigger than you were before. And he says, and are you? She says, but, yeah, but Aslan, you're, you're so much bigger. What happened? He says, it's because you're older. And she says, but Aslan, aren't you older? And he said, no, I'm not any older. But the more you grow, the more I will appear bigger. You see, you tell a 10-year-old, God's grace will forgive you of your sin, and he says, oh, I need that. Okay, great. Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Fast forward. You take a 40-year-old who's lived his life in sin and and separation from God, doing his own thing, and he's now an alcoholic. He's literally by himself ruined two or three marriages and he's trying to to wrestle with this and he's trying to figure out life and someone comes to him and presents to him the grace of God. That man will say, the grace of God is enormous because look at all that I am being forgiven for. That's the kind of Power that we have. We live with a joy and an enjoyment of the love of a Savior that says, I will never stop loving you. I will never stop offering you my grace. And Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter three, he says, It is my prayer, it is my desire that you may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The second thing we get to do is to enjoy the wisdom of a leader, and that's the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful for the Holy Spirit? The gift that God's given to us, that third person in the Trinity that leads us into all truth, that comforts us and empowers us. He gives us strength when we have no strength. He gives us wisdom when we don't know the answers. He's with us every step of the way. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow when we don't. And so he is there to lead us and guide us. The tragedy, if we could use that strong of a term for the Christian, is if we don't rely on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Because he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what your business is going to do and what the economy is going to do. And he knows what this, he knows everything about tomorrow. And he said, I want to lead you today so you'll be prepared for tomorrow. And we get to enjoy that as Christians to live and enjoy the wisdom of a leader. Many Christians are very familiar with Jesus as Savior, but not so familiar with the Holy Spirit as leader. I encourage you today, get to know the Holy Spirit. Invite him into your life in in depths that you've never yet experienced. Invite him to say, God, I want you to fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. I want to enjoy a relationship with this one who already knows the beginning from the end. Thirdly, we get to enjoy the authority of a king. And that's the father as followers of Christ, not living a, a selfish, sinful, I'm in charge life, but a submitted life. We get to enjoy the authority of a king. God is perfect. He is perfect because of love, justice, and mercy. Without those three qualities, there is no perfection. Love, justice, and mercy. Love sent Jesus to the cross Justice was satisfied on the cross. And mercy is freely given because of the cross. God is perfect. And he not only tolerates people like you and me, he actually loves us. He actually says, I'm interested in you. I care about what's happening. And I want the best for your life. And the best for your life is a submitted life, submitted to me. You fight for autonomy and freedom to do what you want. He said, that's where bondage is found. When you submit to me, that's where freedom is found. When I do not understand, I'm going to submit. When I don't know the answers, I'm going to worship. When I feel insecure, I'm going to trust. Because our God is a God of authority. He's got it all under control. He knows everything that's going to happen. And he says, I'm going to lead you and I'm going to guide you. I'm going to show you because I care about you. He said, I do not sleep. I do not slumber. I, I don't go to sleep. I never wake up. I'm always on, I'm always on watch. I'm, I always know what's going on. Man, we get to enjoy that. In a world filled with anxiety, we get to enjoy the fact that God never sleeps. He never has to watch the news to find out what happened last night. He was awake. King Nebuchadnezzar discovered that living without God was bondage. And he discovered that living in submission to God's authority is truly living. Do you know that today? And Let me talk to those who here and you're exploring Christianity, maybe you're you're trying to figure it out. I would, say that I would say that God has given us one way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. And I would say that God loves you, and he cares. And there's nothing you have ever done that he doesn't already know about, and there's nothing you've done that it's cost him not to love you. He loves you, and he's got a great plan for your life. But that plan takes us out of selfishness and into submission. But what about you as Christians, those of you who are followers of Christ? Is it a to wake up time today to say, you know what? I want restoration of my life to God. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I know, but there's a part of that relationship that is restored. You ever had a friendship, maybe a marriage, in which you go, you know, yeah, we're, we're married, but could be better. We've had better. We want better. But it's not better. What do you need? Restoration. So, Christian, God loves you. You love God. But is there that time right now when God's saying, Come on, you've been doing your own thing. You've been going your own way. Be restored. Submit to my leadership. I want what's best for you. I have what's best for you. And this is the time when God is saying, Come on, let's get it together. Let's get it together. Follow me and I'll bless you. Follow me and I'll care for you.